Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 2nd, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm chats with Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories. And then Julie Cornfield tells us about a chemical additive that could make jet fuels safer. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on building a better sunscreen. What's wrong with the sunscreens that we have now, Dave? Well, a couple of problems. If you think of the two types of sunscreen that are the most popular, one is the zinc oxide paste. Think of the white noses on lifeguards. You know, these work by literally blocking light from getting into your skin, but they're not, you know, not super comfortable and they're not very sightly. And the more popular type of sunscreen, the type that's invisible, at least after it goes on, actually blocks UV light. But there are some problems. It's been shown to actually seep into skin and who knows what it's doing there when it gets inside the body. Also, we're using a lot of it, and that means a lot of those chemicals are getting into the environment when we wash it off. So neither of these current sunscreens are really ideal. And how did the research in this current study make improvements on sunscreen? They used nanoparticles, which are these tiny, tiny particles. And basically the nanoparticles used in this study are like little bubbles that are filled with UV-blocking chemicals. And the idea is that these bubbles actually stick to protein-rich surfaces like the skin. And the hope is that if they just if they stick really tightly to the skin, they're not going to go anywhere else. Yeah, it does seem like something that's nano, that's very, very small, would be more likely to get into the body. They find that that was not the case? They found that that was not the case. They actually shaved the fur off of mice <laughs> and, and coated them with either a traditional sunblock or their nanoparticle sunscreen. And what they found is that, first of all, both groups of mice were equally protected from UV rays. So this nanoparticle sunscreen was as effective. And it also stayed outside the body. So it just stuck to the skin, didn't get inside. The researchers also found that the sunblock could stay on the skin for up to 
five days. <laughs> so that's uh, that's quite a sunblock. Agreed. It sounds like it might stick around everywhere for a while, though. Is that a concern? Well, that's certainly a concern because you remember one of the problems with traditional sunblock is the worry about a lot of these chemicals getting into the environment. I guess one of the advantages of the new sunblock is you need a lot less of it. And so the idea is if we're putting a lot less of this stuff on our skin and maybe not having to replenish it every few hours or even every day, then when we do wipe it off or shower it off, a lot less of it's going to be getting into the environment. How close to market is this? What are the next steps for this product? Well, the researchers are trying to get permission to test this on people. So you shouldn't expect it on a drugstore shelf anytime soon. Next up, we have a story on counting past four. In some languages, words for numbers may only go as high as three or four. Any larger amount is denoted many. But languages don't stay the same. And that's what this study is about, how languages talk about numbers over time. Dave, what would it be like to not have the number five or any bigger number than that? Yeah, it's, it's such a weird concept for us. We've got an infinite number of numbers. You can imagine a culture where a shepherd is taking care of his flock and he doesn't really care maybe about the absolute number of sheep he's got, but maybe just the uh, gestalt of the sheep. Just like I've got a lot of sheep, I'm sort of mentally keeping track of them. It doesn't necessarily need a number. It's also kind of interesting when researchers talk to people from other cultures because we assume, well, what if you have six kids. <laughs> Do you really know how many kids you have if you can't count to six? And when anthropologists talk to other cultures, other cultures think that question is kind of ridiculous because they know the names of all their kids and they know how many kids they have. They just don't have a number for that. So this is there's some sort of cultural relativism going on here. And for the current study, what languages did the researchers analyze? Well, they looked at the Pama-Nyungan language family, which once extended across most of Australia, it contains today about 300 languages that are currently spoken by about 25,000 people although as many as a couple million people may have spoken these languages in the past. And what's interesting is most of these languages have number systems that stop at the number five. And what did they do in their analysis? Did they just count up the number of languages with different number systems? Well, it's kind of complicated, but basically what they did was they tried to create this language evolutionary tree by looking at historical records and the modern way that languages are spoken to try to get a sense of how these languages changed over time. And the really interesting thing that they found was that a lot of languages were okay once they got to the number three or even four. But once they got to five, they were very likely to go a lot higher than that, sometimes all the way up to 20 or beyond 20. The idea being that once you have to start counting all the way to five, you probably have to start counting a lot higher than that as well. I thought it was surprising that a language would gain higher numbers and then lose them again. Is that something that researchers expected to see? What they saw was that languages would sometimes gain the word for four, and then that would disappear. And what that might indicate is that this language, for whatever reason, over time didn't, decided that it didn't need those higher numerals. Sometimes these cultures develop higher numerals when they start trading with other cultures they don't necessarily trust, and therefore you can't be very speculative about numbers. At that point, you have to have hard numbers. And so this could be a case where a culture maybe started trading with another culture and needed some higher numbers and maybe stopped trading with them, became more insular, and decided it didn't need those higher numbers anymore. Last up, we have a story on empathy. I feel your pain, Dave. <laughs> I really, truly do at least according to this new study, because empathy for someone else's pain may actually trigger pain pathways in our own brains. 
they used a pretty neat method to get at this idea, Dave. Can you walk us through the setup? The researchers didn't want to give the volunteers, and there were about 100 of them, traditional painkillers, morphine, Tylenol, things like that, because these painkillers can have a lot of other side effects that could really confound the results of the study. So the researchers actually gave the volunteers placebo. And what's interesting about the placebo pill that they use is it's been shown in other studies to actually activate a lot of the anti-pain pathways that a lot of painkilling drugs do. People were given fake painkillers, and then were they subjected to real pain? Yes, they got electric shocks, and they also got to see somebody else get electric shocks. And what was really interesting is when they received the placebo pill, they reported less pain, as had been shown in previous studies, but they also rated the pain of others as being lower. So if they were looking through a window at somebody getting electric shocks, but they themselves had taken a placebo, they were less likely to say that person was in pain or maybe that person was in less pain. The conclusion the researchers draw from that is the same pathway that's affected by drugs that reduce pain, the same pathway that's activated by pain, is also activated by feeling empathy for someone else in pain. Right. It suggests that there is a lot of similarity between the pain that we actually feel and the pain that we think other people are feeling. And they took it one step further. They then gave them a drug that blocks the effect of the placebo. Right, right. And then, as you might expect, the effects were reversed. Now people did feel more pain, and they felt more of the pain of others. Is this a definitive way to know that a pain pathway in the brain is being used when we feel empathy? Could something else be going on? These are pretty complicated pathways, and just this one study of showing that the researchers think they're blocking the pathway or that they might not be impacting other parts of our physiology, there's probably not enough data to say definitively that the two are conclusively linked. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how the bacteria in an infant's gut can influence their risk of asthma. Also, a potentially new way to store 100 times more data on memory chips than we are able to do right now. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a chat with the Pope's new chief astronomer. Also a story about the granddaughter of Francis Crick creating a genomic-inspired sculpture. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencebag.org. In 1977, two jumbo jets collided on the runway on Tenerife in the Canary Islands, killing 583 people. The human toll of history's deadliest airplane accident would likely have been much lower if jet fuels in the form of mist hadn't ignited, creating a fireball that engulfed both airplanes. The accident inspired a worldwide effort to control fuel mists, but interest and funding for such research waned during the late 80s, only to be sparked again after 9-11. Julie Cornfield discusses the results of her team's efforts since then to use polymer theory to design fuel additives that could eliminate the problem of explosive fuel mists. I'm Suzanne Bard. A crash that takes place on the ground, if there wasn't such a hot fire, hot enough to melt aluminum, then people should be able to walk away. I mean, the crash happened on the ground. So the U.S. and U.K. responded by launching a binational R&D effort to control mist. 
Why? Because in the crash, the fuel becomes dispersed as a fine mist. In the event of any crash, there's always sources of sparks. So you're guaranteed ignition will occur. And to really reduce the severity and the duration of that fire so that people could then open the doors and walk away, you need to inhibit the mist formation. So what is it about a fuel taking the form of a mist that makes it so flammable, Julie? So combustion of fuels takes place in the vapor phase. That's where the fuel molecules and the oxygen actually react. Fuel mists exhibit counterintuitive behavior, especially when the droplets are very, very small. So, for example, when droplets are in the order of a micron in size, the concentration of vapor around them is higher than it would be over a pool of fuel. So a fine mist can support a flame at a lower temperature than bulk fuel can. And then another non-obvious effect arises from the fact that when a liquid vaporizes, its volume increases a thousandfold. So in a mist, if a flame starts to propagate, the heat from the flame vaporizes more and more of the droplets. And the gas that results has a thousand times more volume than those droplets. And that anomalous expansion can allow a very fast flame propagation rates in a mist, faster than you would have if it was just a vapor of fuel with air. And so a fine mist is not only more dangerous than a pool of fuel, it's more dangerous than a vapor phase mixture of fuel and air. It's really quite dangerous. And the good news is that the same effects that make a fine mist especially dangerous are greatly reduced when a coarse mist forms instead. So you don't have to completely prevent misting It's enough just to shift the drop size upward. And are jet fuels inherently more or less safe than any other kind of fuel? So aviation fuel already is relatively safe. It's safer than diesel. It's safer than gasoline. Okay. It's a very safe fuel. And if you aren't familiar with the quantity called the flash point, it's the temperature at which the liquid fuel is warm enough that the vapor in equilibrium with that liquid could support a flame. Aviation fuel has a temperature for sustaining flame that's well above ambient temperature. It's one of the safest fuels. So that said, wouldn't it be great to make it even safer? So the polymers that we describe have the potential to reduce the risk of a fireball after a crash. You know, jet fuel is not designed for crashes. It's designed for being safe in routine handling. And the challenge after a crash is that it breaks up into very fine droplets, and those present a greater hazard. Now, flying is considered relatively safe compared to other forms of travel. But what's the impact of fuel fires on the aviation industry overall? There are two types of fuel fires that concern the aviation industry, fires that involve aircraft and fires that occur on the ground as part of airport operations. During the course of a flight, the most dangerous maneuvers are takeoff and landing, and crashes that occur during or shortly after takeoff are a particular concern because the plane carries the full amount of fuel needed for the flight. So you might remember a crash in Madrid in 2008. Uh, An MD-82 had 10 crew and 162 passengers, and it crashed on takeoff and caught fire. And the plane was fueled for a fairly long flight, and so it resulted in an inferno. The fuel mist caused by impact produced a fireball that made it difficult to escape. And so even though the plane had barely left the ground, only 18 people survived, and some of them were severely burned. 
So that's an example of a fire that concerns the aviation industry. An example of a fuel fire on the ground would be the March 2011 fire at the Miami International Airport. That's one where an investigation by CBS reported that one of the large fuel pumps had breached. The manifold separated enough to spray jet fuel under extremely high pressure out into the air, which led to massive explosions. So it's another case where the mist leads to the explosion. That fire ended up destroying all 14 pumps and filter vessels at their north pump pad, and it reduced the airport's fueling capacity by half, and they used 1.6 to 2 million gallons of fuel a day. So disruption of the airport operations went on for at least a week during a peak tourist season. So it had a substantial cost, not only for the airlines, but also for the greater Miami economy. So that's an example of a ground fire that's of concern for the aviation industry. And safety isn't the only concern with fuel mists. Let's discuss the security issues that fuel mists pose. So the biggest thing that changed is that after 2001, instead of merely being concerned about terrorism targeting civil aviation by hijacking, which was already horrific, threatening the lives of everyone on board a jumbo jet. After 2001, the concern was that terrorists could use a fully fueled jumbo jet as a weapon that could kill thousands of people in a single attack. My hope is that miscontrol could render a fully fueled airplane ineffective as a weapon so that terrorists wouldn't even be motivated to try it. They would know it's useless. What is it about miscontrol that would make it useless as a weapon? So, for example, in the case of the World Trade Center towers, the National Institute of Standards and Technology did an analysis of that fire, and they determined that if the initial explosion had not occurred, that the fire would not have reached temperatures sufficient to soften steel, right? So if you can eliminate the ability to generate that large explosion at the beginning, you severely limit the magnitude of the harm that can be done. So it would have just been much smaller. Yeah. So major cities that have high-rise buildings also have firefighting capability for those buildings. If it had been anything like an ordinary fire, and in fact they determined even if the fuel had spilled in the building but the windows hadn't been blown out, they would have been able to fight that fire. So your team used polymer theory to come up with potential fuel additives that could control mists. Tell me about that process. So starting with theory is extremely helpful. And in fact, true confessions are we had done a number of experiments that were not working based on hypotheses that were already in the literature. And so we resorted to theory because we were getting quite frustrated. And in particular, I had a wonderful graduate student, Amari David, and he said, you know, it takes a long time to make molecules and do experiments. I think I'm going to do some theory before I make any more of them. And he decided that the molecular design that would probably be fruitful would be a long, flexible chain with end groups that associate together. And he came to that because of what hadn't worked. So the prior literature suggested putting, I'll call them stickers. So you imagine a long, flexible chain with groups placed randomly along its backbone that can stick together. And our hope was that they would stick to other molecules, allowing you to build up a very, very big assembly of molecules. However, what Omri found out is that as you dilute them, which you would want for fuel to have very low concentration of polymer, they, of course, just 
associate with themselves and they form a tiny little ball of useless stuff. So he said, if we want to mimic an effect that is observed for very long linear chains, they act like molecular rubber bands in a fluid and they resist stretching. He said, then I should put the associative groups only at the ends. But I don't know how strong they should be and I don't know how long the chains should be. So I really need to do some theory before making the molecules. And he didn't care whether or not they ever existed before. And he wasn't limited by not knowing that there was a way to make them, right? So he predicts these molecules that are quite outside of our prior experience collectively, you know, and uh, that put us on the right path. So if it hadn't been for theory, we would not have made these crazy molecules. So one of the things that I reflect on when I think of the value of theory is that it takes you beyond your imagination. So in your paper, you talk about mega supermolecules. What are they? The mega in mega supermolecules means we're measuring it in millions of grams per mole. They're very, very big. And supramolecule refers to a molecule that is assembled from other individual molecules. And it usually is by the design of those individual molecules. So in this case, the design of the length and the stickiness of the end groups builds into the molecules that they'll spontaneously build into these very, very large supermolecules. So what's so special about these molecules? One of the things I love about these molecules is that they heal themselves. So this whole idea of putting associative groups on the ends, it's kind of like Velcro. You know, you pull them apart and you put them back together and you pull them apart and you put them back together. So uh, the problem with ultra long chains that have only covalent backbones is they go through a pump and they get torn in half and they can never put themselves back together. These guys, as soon as they get to a quiet part of the flow, they heal themselves, you know, and so they take a beating and they just keep on working. And I think that's kind of a neat thing about them. And they burn cleanly. It's, it was really interesting looking at the engine test results. So at least in the diesel engines that we've tested, so we don't have jet engine data yet, but in diesel engines, there was no adverse effect on power or efficiency and the emissions were hardly changed with the exception of the benefit of reducing soot by about 12%. So the molecules represent something that we believe will be invisible to engine operation and essentially invisible to routine fuel handling. So that's also kind of a cool thing. And we don't have proof yet, but we believe it's a result of the fact that they can be pulled apart and then put back together. So when the fuel has to go through a filter, no problem, they pull apart. When it has to spray into the engine, no problem, they pull apart. But when you have a big volume of fuel that's sitting relatively still and then you crash, then they're all put together and they're ready to protect you from mist formation. So they're cool, I think. Yeah. Do these molecules have potential as additives in consumer vehicles? Yeah, so... We haven't done any experiments with gasoline. Gasoline is really dangerous stuff. So its flashpoint is like minus 45 degrees, right? It bursts into flames very, very easily. We're hoping that mist control would be beneficial, but it could be that gasoline is just so flammable 
that it's very hard to protect people from gasoline fires in the event of a crash. So at this point, we're pretty optimistic about it benefiting anyone who's using a diesel-powered vehicle, and we don't know whether it will help in gasoline. I'm very eager to test it in gasoline for various other reasons, like, well, what if we could improve you know, fuel economy, or what if we could reduce emissions, or any of a number of other effects? But we don't know if it would give fire protection because gasoline is so flammable. And then think of all the materials that you use as a mist, right? So if you think about the way pesticides are applied to farms, could we help control the drop size so that you control the way that those droplets land on leaves and stay there and don't get carried away in the wind? You think of paints and other organic liquids that need to be dispersed as a spray in order to be used. This polymer might find broad use wherever you're dealing with organic sprays. And that also is relevant to occupational safety. So in the workplace, if you have a mist of oil, for example, like in a machine shop, if you can increase the drop size so that those fall down more quickly, you can have a smaller amount of organic fine mist in the air of the workplace. So there are a lot of different ways in which mist control could be used beyond fuel. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Julie Cornfield and her team write about the anti-misting properties of fuel additives based on polymer theory in this week's Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>